uh, Mark chapter 14 uh, today, and I've got a... uh, I've got a summary that I want to reach to you guys that I think will be helpful. I think I was talking to Emily Day this past week, right, Emily? And she said that her dad said, why can I always see your pastor's phone in his pocket? And uh, I said, well, because my jeans are too tight. That's why. um, There you go. Uh, Hey, we're going to be in Mark 14 today, uh, a a fairly lengthy section for what we are accustomed to. We'll begin in verse 26 and work through verse 52, but I want to give you a quick summary, okay? Um, And I kind of want to be clear about the order of what we're going to be talking about this morning. And so um, we've got four, uh, like, observations that we are going to make, but... Just to clear up any potential confusion, these are not points. So for those of you that are normally running a shot clock on how long I talk on point one and then go through the rest, this morning it doesn't matter. So I'm setting you at ease. I'm freeing you from the clock as well as myself. Uh, because what we're going to really be doing is unpacking this idea, this this summarization of what we're going to see this morning in verses 26 through 52 as we observe the betrayal of Jesus uh, and his seizure from Mark's account. And so here's a summary. And and we're going to make four observations about the passage that we're going to spend some time unpacking. Some are going to be much shorter. Uh, some are going to be longer, but they're simply observations from the text. And so what? how can we summarize our time together this morning? Here's, here's two sentences that we might say, and these things work together, okay? And so let me, let me just share this with you. Through the betrayal and abandonment of Jesus, which is what we're going to observe this morning in Mark 14, Humanity's guilt, shame, fear, and need are exposed. Okay, so let me say that. Let me say that first part one more time. Through the betrayal and abandonment of Jesus, humanity's guilt, shame, fear, and need are exposed. Now, as we continue to work our way through the passage, we're going to see that Jesus answers his betrayal and abandonment, not with condemnation, but by covering sinners in his perfect righteousness. Okay, we're going to see Jesus make abundantly clear, again, in this morning's passage, as he did that last week, of his sovereign understanding of his betrayal from his friends and his seizure by his enemies. Okay? We're going to observe this, and we're going to see super clearly this morning how Jesus meets this betrayal and abandonment at the hands of his friends, not with condemnation, but with great grace. Four observations that we're going to make from our passage this morning. First, Jesus is betrayed. We'll see the betrayal of of Jesus. We'll see that Jesus is sold out and he is abandoned. And in each of these, we see it culminating with this, this exposing of human guilt, shame, fear, and our need before he finally covers us in his perfect righteousness. And so this is what we're going to be observing this morning from our passage. Uh, I'm going to read it in its entirety, and then we're going to go back and we're going to make some observations. The Gospel Coalition, a number of months ago, wrote an article that emphasized the most perfect part of your uh, time together as a Christian fellowship each week is the reading of God's Word. And so we're going to step into Mark 14, beginning in verse 26, and we're going to read through verse 52, understanding that what we are reading and what we're entering into is perfect. And it has been preserved by God 
to his glory for the church throughout the nation, throughout the, uh, the ages. And so let's, uh, let's begin in verse 26. Last week we saw Jesus uh, institute the Lord's Supper, and in doing so, uh, as he observes the Passover meal with his disciples, there is this emphasis on like the new, right? The arrival of the Messiah, the Christ, our King, who is, is, is bringing us to a point of transition, Right, that this this old covenant were trans being be transferred from old covenant into this this new covenant, which is the blood and the body of Christ. We see this this fairly routine meal being observed by Jesus and his followers suddenly undergoes uh, an interruption and a rewriting of sorts, but only in the way that Jesus clarifies that the Passover meal was all about him the entire time. Right, that the, the, the exodus that uh, God's people have remembered, uh, going back to uh, the, the exodus, right, in the days of, of Moses, was all about, and it was pointing towards this greater exodus, this greater bringing out that would be accomplished by God as sinners looked to Christ in faith. Right, faith that it's who he is, right? And it's what he has accomplished that brings us out of our sin and death and establishes us in, in light and life, right? This is what we saw last week. And in the midst of it all, Jesus says, listen, like, like there's going to be a betrayal that happens, right? And then the emphasis is initially on Judas because we know as we're going to observe in our second observation that he sells Jesus out, right? But, but in this, there's also this question that begins to circulate around the table as Jesus' friends look at one another and they go, well, is it, is it me? Like, is it I? There's this concern and there's this, this worry. Uh, and we said last week that it's, it's really in light of this understanding that we all have somewhere in us that we are prone to wander, right? That, that there is that capability within us. To, to run and to, and to flee. And so the disciples begin wrestling with this during the institution of uh, the first supper, right? Which we will enjoy with God anew one day. This morning we see uh, the disciples confronted again with the reality of their shortcomings and their great need. Only to then kind of like, uh, I don't know, become very prideful. Uh, and so that's what we're going to see this morning. We've got to read the passage. We're getting to the perfect part, right? Here we go. Verse 26, this is the word of the Lord. And when they had sung a hymn, they went out to the Mount of Olives. And Jesus said to them, you will all fall away. For it is written, I will strike the shepherd and the sheep will be scattered. But after I am raised up, I will go before you to Galilee. Peter said to him, even though they all fall away, I will not. And Jesus said to him, truly, I tell you, this very night before the rooster crows twice, you will deny me three times. And he said emphatically, if I must die with you, I will not deny you. And they all said the same. And they went to a place called Gethsemane. And he said to his disciples, sit here while I pray. And he took with him Peter, James, and John and began to be greatly distressed and troubled. 
And he said to them, my soul is very sorrowful, even to death. Remain here and watch. And going a little further, he fell on the ground and prayed that if it were possible, the hour might pass from him. And he said, Abba, Father, all things are possible for you. Remove this cup from me, yet not what I will, but what you will. And he came and found them sleeping. And he said to Peter, Simon, are you asleep? Could you not watch one hour? Watch and pray that you may not enter into temptation. The spirit indeed is willing, but the flesh is weak. And again, he went away and prayed, saying the same words. And again, he came and found them sleeping, for their eyes were very heavy, and they did not know what to answer him. And he had come the third time and said to them, Are you still sleeping and taking your rest? It is enough. The hour has come. The Son of Man is betrayed into the hands of sinners. Rise, let us be going. See, my betrayer is at hand. And immediately, while he was still speaking, Judas came, one of the twelve, and with him a crowd with swords and clubs from the chief priests and the scribes and the elders. Now the betrayer had given them a sign saying, the one I will kiss is the man. Seize him and lead him away under guard. And when he came, he went up to him at once and said, Rabbi, and he kissed him. And they laid hands on him and seized him. But one of those who stood by drew his sword and struck the servant of the high priest and cut off his ear. And Jesus said to them, have you come out against, as, as against a robber with swords and clubs to capture me? Day after day, I was with you in the temple preaching, and you did not seize me, but let the scriptures be fulfilled. And they all left him and fled. And a young man followed him with nothing but a loincloth about his body, and they seized him, but he left the linen cloth and ran away naked. Hey, let's pray together. Lord, thanks for your word and for your great grace and for your spirit who opens our eyes and our hearts um, to the truth that you have spoken that has been recorded and passed down. We love you and we are grateful, Father, for your love for us. And it's in the name of Jesus that we pray. Amen. Amen. This is a lot, isn't it? I was talking to uh, Courtney and I, we were, we were chatting about our time together in this passage this week, and we were remembering the providence of the Lord, because last Good Friday, we met in this room, right, and we read through uh, the entire uh, gospel of Mark up into the crucifixion and the burial of Jesus in one night, and it has gone down in infamy. Right? We all remember. And I remember I was standing about here last year reading, and I was looking out, and Hunter was definitely asleep, and there were a few others, right? Uh, And I said, as we prepared to go into this portion, I said, this is going to be interesting. We're going to read this passage in a new light next year, given that half of us in this room are asleep. Right, And so isn't it interesting that we find ourselves this morning in Mark 14 and we find Jesus' sleepy friends in the garden yet again. 
uh, as we prepare to go into Holy Week. It's a really interesting time to be alive, and here we are. And so uh, let's begin uh, unpacking these four observations from our passage. We begin with the betrayal of Jesus. We see in verses 26 through 42 that Jesus is betrayed. Look with me beginning at verse, in verse 26. So this is following the, the institution of the Lord's Supper. And we see as we do each week, right? This is what we do each week is informed by what we see in God's word, right? That after we enjoy table fellowship uh, with God, right? And with his people, we sing a song together each week. And we see that the precedent for this is set here in Mark's account in verse 26. And after they sing, we see a, a scene shift, Right? There's a transition that takes place, and they begin to make their way towards the Mount of Olives. And on the way, Jesus, as he is, uh, as the disciples have become accustomed to him doing, he drops this this bombshell on them. And what we talked about last week in the implicit becomes explicit this week. Last week we talked about, as we said in the beginning, the question that the disciples begin to ask themselves concerning Jesus' revelation of the betrayal. Right, And we said there is this tendency within each one of us. We know it. We're aware of it. We don't commit well. right? We're not, we're not super good at committing. And so we know that there's a tendency for us to, to stray and to wander. And that was implicit last week. But we see it made explicit by way of what Jesus says in verse 27. Where he quotes from Zechariah 13 verse 7. And he says this. Now I want us to consider the context. I want us to consider what has just taken place. And now the disciples, the friends of Jesus and Jesus are on this walk together to the Mount of Olives. And he says, while on the way, you will all fall away. Right? What was implicit last week becomes explicit this week. You will all fall away for it is written, I will strike the shepherd and the sheep will be scattered. Again, from Zechariah chapter 13, essentially we see here. Jesus making the following statement as he connects what is to happen with what was said by the uh, prophet Zechariah. He says this, I, right, the good shepherd, which we see Jesus identified as throughout the gospel accounts, the good shepherd and keeper of God's flock will be what? Well, we see here in quoting from Zechariah 13 that he will be, he will be struck, right? That he will be, he will be beaten, Right? And he will be he will be killed. He'll be beaten and he'll be killed at the hands of the Romans. But we know, right, as we consider the, the bigger story, that it's not ultimately the Romans, is it? Right? Based on what we can understand and read and perceive from Acts chapter two and Peter's sermon, we see that there is plenty of guilt to go around among the people. But but what is ultimately at the heart and responsible for the crucifixion of Christ, his his punishment, right? That he is just hours away from beginning to endure is ultimately at the hands of the Father. Now, this is a, a radical idea for some of us, for, for many of us perhaps. It's a radical idea as we consider it, as I consider it this morning. Right, that, that, that that which Jesus is to experience on his person and in his soul is not emphasized mostly by the, the Romans, right, or the betrayal of, of his people, his, his covenant people, but, but instead by the Father, 
right? In whom we find this plan to rescue sinners laid forth before the foundations of the world. We're seeing a fruition realized here, right? Like that this is, this is what's happening, that it is the father out of love for the sheep and this desire to see his name glorified that Jesus is to experience all that he will over the next few hours. Now, this is, this is incredible, like this is this is groundbreaking type stuff. If we're at all confused again about about what God is like, we get this beautiful picture over the course of the next few verses as Jesus enters into our suffering in, in a new and unique way as he prepares himself for the cross. And when all of this happens, based on what Jesus says here from Zechariah 13, not only will Judas have betrayed me, which like, okay, we get that, right? Like there's been some some groundwork set and laid for us to understand this particular piece of the puzzle. But Jesus says that all of you will fall away. He tells his friends, like all of you guys are going to, are you're going to fall away. You're going to run, you're going to scatter, you're going to abandon, and you are going to betray me. And we're going to see that begin to unfold in just a few, in just a few verses. And so two truths that we can begin observing as we unpack the betrayal of Jesus. Two truths that come out just up into this point, verses 26 and 27. We can say this, and this is informative, Right as it as it pertains to our understanding of who God is. Okay, let's get this: that, that God uses the intentions of evil to bring about the greatest possible good. Right, well, what we see as we have been over the past year, just walking through the life of Jesus and hearing the things that He has said and seeing His love for people and His teaching and His drawing. We see now that he's going to enter into incredible suffering, incredible difficulty, and the intentions of evil men. But we see in this and through this, God bringing all of this about for the greatest possible good. That God works through evil intentions to bring about righteous purposes, right? And this isn't a new idea. This isn't something that we get to Mark 14 and we go, wow, this is new, right? This is, this is what our God has done throughout history, right? There are, there are multiple examples of God working in the midst of, of difficulty and what, what might even be deemed as tragedy to bring about God-glorifying purposes and, and intentions, right? But that's so easy for us to lose sight of, isn't it? It right? isn't that easy for us to, to, to lose sight of. We, we get caught up in oftentimes, and just think back a couple of weeks, all of the challenge and all of the difficulty and all of the trial and suffering that God's people are to experience as we read through the Olivet Discourse, right? Life will be challenging. Life will be, will be difficult, right? Not because of, of sinful decisions made by God's people, but instead because we live in a fallen and broken and rebellious world. 
And we see here that God is able to work evil for good, that he's committed to this, that he brings this about. And in this scene, we see ultimately this bringing about of the greatest possible good that we can imagine, right? That rebels from God, those who have spurned him and sought after self-glorification and self-exaltation, are rescued by our righteous king who sets himself in our place, absorbing upon his person the punishment that we are due for all of our rebellion. And in turn, as we look to him in faith, confident that his life and his death are capable of bringing about regeneration within our hearts and our lives, That he will give to us his righteousness. So it's not about, it's not about us, right? As it comes to and pertains to our relationship with God and that we bring nothing to the table except our need. Here we see those that are walking closest with Jesus are going to run away. Over the course of the next few verses, our need by way of the disciples' need is going to be emphasized. And so if we're at all confused if we have need or not. Right? Need for forgiveness, need for, for, for righteousness that exists outside of ourselves, but all along brings about great benefit to the redeemed. We're introduced to it in this passage. Does that make sense? That's the first thing that we, that we get that comes out. Second thing is this, that Jesus's friends will scatter. That Jesus's friends will scatter and they will cower and it will look like momentarily that all hope is lost. They are like mice. As the shepherd is struck, they flee. They just, they run away. They scatter. And it will appear momentarily as though this is, this is all turned out very differently than we expected. Right? And it will appear for a moment as though the hope that they had, had, had placed everything on was, was to be ripped away. But we see that there's not, we're not left in this tension for very long. In fact, as we transition into verse 28, we see that there is this, this hope that Jesus speaks of foreshadowing to the resurrection following the statement concerning the betrayal of his friends. Look with me at verse 28. Hey, here it is, right? I will strike the shepherd. Sheep will be scattered. But after I'm raised up, I will go before you to Galilee. And so it's going to, for God's people, those who are closest to him, it's going to appear as though hope has been seized And it's just moments away from being killed. And they run. But what we see in verse 28 is this foreshadowing, don't we? We see foreshadowing to the hope of the resurrection. And even this meeting that is to take place in Galilee that's going to just set the world on its heels, right? Like it's just going to be this incredible exchange between Jesus and his, and his followers and these angels who are observing on, who then send them on their way. And then we just see the church beginning to explode as God pours out his spirit again on his people to reside within them. It's just this incredible hope foreshadowed in verse 28.
8, but we're introduced to a primary problem in verse 29 and the reason for everything that needs to take place in verse 27. Jesus has just foreshadowed again to the hope of the resurrection, that the king would conquer death. And I want us to look at Peter's first response. Here it is. This is, this is incredible. He says, hey, even, even though they all fall away, verse 29, I will not. Even if everyone else falls away, hey, like, not me. Like, I'm not falling away. I'm not going anywhere. And Jesus said to him, truly, I tell you this very night before the rooster crows twice, you will deny me three times. But he again follows up emphatically. What beautiful language. If I must die with you, I will not deny you. Well, there is this death, right, that Peter is to experience for Christ. But it looks altogether different than what he is imagining here in this in this scene, but he says, hey, even if I have to die, I'm not leaving you. Like, I won't deny you. Like, I am right here with you. And so there's this hope of the resurrection that's foreshadowed towards in verse 28. And then, as opposed to going, my goodness, like, you're going to, like, the defeat of death, right? And victory over sin and hell and the grave. All of these things are transpiring. Only, I've got this serious issue as it pertains to my rejection and rebellion, right? That's more what I want to talk about. And, and so um, I think that there's a term that we're fairly familiar um, to when it comes to things like this. And it comes from Proverbs chapter 16. You might not even have known that it was in the Bible, but it is. And it's this statement that pride comes before the fall, right? You guys ever heard this before? Like pride comes before the, here we see a great example of what it looks like for pride to come before the, the fall, right? It, it oftentimes comes before the fall, and it almost always comes from misguided perception. That's exactly what we see happening here. There's this misguided perception on, on who God is and on who we are, Right, who God is and who we are in this misconception like about these things, right? That we are oftentimes better than we believe ourselves to be and less in need than we actually are. This past week, um, because pride is, an, is a problem, man, and we all struggle with it, right? Like this is an issue for us, us all. This is a human issue, right? This is a humanitarian issue. I looked up. Uh, I looked up an article that I'd remember reading a handful of years ago um, that was posted on Desiring God, and it was seven symptoms of pride. Yikes! Hold on, right? Um, seven symptoms of pride. I think we see them present in this scene, but if we do honest reflection uh, of our own lives, we also see it. Um, we we see it there as as well. From Peter, this this naive presumption that he can follow Jesus by by simple assertion of will comes crashing down, and Jesus foreshadows towards that. But we see seven symptoms of pride. Can I read these to you guys? Are you guys cool with that? I'm going to do it anyway. So here we go. Seven symptoms of pride. Here's the first one. Fault finding. Right? That pride is is oftentimes 
fault finding. Well, what does that mean? Well, here's what that means. As opposed to seeing the need for surgery on our own hearts, I love the imagery, we tend to focus on the need in others. As opposed to seeing the need for surgery on our own hearts, we tend to uh, focus on the need in others, right? You're sitting here. We've all been here perhaps before, right? You're sitting in a church service and you're like, oh yeah, I'm glad that we were talking about this today because I know somebody in this room who needs it, right? Um, And that's a little bit of the picture that we see, right? As opposed to honest reflection, On the need that exists within our own hearts, we find uh, the need that exists in others. In just a few verses, we're going to see a great example of this in Peter as he draws the sword on uh, this this officer that's along with this this group after falling asleep in the garden, right? Um, And so we're going to be confronted with it. That's number one. Number two, harsh-spirited. Pride is oftentimes harsh-spirited. Speaking of the sins of others with irritation, frustration... Judgment and contempt, as opposed to gentleness and grace. Now, for those of us who went through uh, Paul David Tripp's uh, marriage conference seminar last weekend, um, we, we got a great definition and understanding and perhaps even some clarity on what it means to address serious issues and sins with grace. It doesn't mean that there's this ignoring of the sin, but that there's this honest and compassionate and gracious confrontation that takes place desiring to see transformation take place within the heart and life of an individual, Right? And so as opposed to, right, uh, as opposed to seeking the good uh, and and extending grace and desiring transformation, we find that pride oftentimes meets the sense of others with irritation, frustration, judgment, and contempt. Undesirables, we could say. We continue on. We've got seven more, so hold on. Here's number three. Superficiality (laughs) is a symptom of of pride, to be more concerned with the perceptions of others of us than the true condition of our hearts. Oh, snap, right? How, how is everyone perceiving me, right? We're seeing, we're seeing examples here, but we're reflecting back on the need that exists within our own hearts. Hey, they may all leave you, <laughs> but I'm not, right? Even if I have to die, like, I am here, I am, I am with it, Right? Pride is oftentimes defensive, right? I'm not, I'm not prideful. Like, I don't have this going on. I don't know what this looks like. Uh, pride is oftentimes presumptuous before God, either approaching God with confidence, devoid of humility and assurance in Christ. Okay, so uh, approaching God with this confidence that is actually not tethered at all to Christ, but is, is based on who I am and what I have done and what I have to offer, what I have accomplished. That's the first way that this plays itself out. Or no confidence and in turn an emphasis on self as opposed to Christ. And so we don't approach, this is all about approaching God now. We're stepping into this approaching God portion of our time together, right? As we approach God, We do so in humility because we know that the only right that we have to approach God is the righteousness of our king. It's who he is and what he has done, right? That's what allows us to approach. And so we ought not be haughty while 
cutting the tether that exists between you and I and Christ because he's the only means that we have to approach the Father. And so it requires of us humility, right? Now, the other side of this coin is this, that we say we have no confidence to approach God, at which point we're saying, well, I have nothing to offer, and we make it all about us as opposed to who Christ is and what he's already done, right? That's the other side of the coin. We're either too confident, devoid of connection with Christ, or we're not confident at all, and thus saying, well, I don't have it together, which you've got partially right, but Christ rescued you. Right? And so we, we've got this going on. Now, we continue on. We, we see that pride is oftentimes desperate for attention, hungry to be adored. Here, here's a few examples, right? Just within our own, within our own culture. Uh, to have the right car or house or spouse or title. All because there is this desire of the glory of men as opposed to... To God, all these things kind of mold together, don't they? That they all just—they they all fit. We can relate them all back to one another. Uh, pride is oftentimes neglectful of others. Pride prefers some people over others. We see Jesus have a handful of conversation with the religious leaders, right, about this issue, right, of sitting up front and sitting in the in the best seats at the dinner parties. Right? That's what, that's what he's talking about when, when he addresses this. And so the question then is how do we respond to pride? Have we all, have we all been confronted with our need? <laughs> have we been confronted with our need? Have we been confronted with our, with our pride? Do we see tendencies and rhythms in our own lives that oftentimes reflect things that we've just heard and observed in the life of Peter? I think probably so. And so now we need to know how to respond, don't we? Well, here's what we do. We confess it. Right? So if you're sitting here, you're going, man, pride, obviously an issue, similar to what we see what we see from Peter in this passage. It's an issue in my life, and therefore there's this need to confess it. We confess it to Christ, and we confess it to one another. Why? Because we desire accountability and gospel encouragement. Here, Peter denies it, right? No, 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 no. I will not fall away. I will not flee. Hey, all the other sheep, they may scatter, but if I have to follow you to death, I am not going anywhere. And so in this, there's this rejection of gospel encouragement, isn't there? Like, my tendency is to flee. My tendency is to run. And in that, is there not this great emphasis on Christ's steadfastness, his refusal to run, and his pursuit of the lost sheep? Whereas pride leads to the elevation of death by way of elevation of of self, a recognition and acknowledgement of pride moves us towards life and gratitude for the righteousness of Christ. And so if we're here this morning and pride is an issue, which I would imagine that for many of us it is. I I was confronted with my own need this past week as I'm diving into this passage. Man, we confess it to Christ. Right, And then we confess it to one another and we say these are areas, real areas of, of sin and struggle in my life. And my desire now in light of this new heart that has been gifted to me by God is to pursue holiness. Right, And so there's this desired accountability that comes along. There's this transparency. There's this authenticity that opens one up to understand to a greater degree God's great grace. Are you guys with me? As we acknowledge these things and we hear yet again, man, God, God loves us, 
right? And he pursues us and he's committed to our transformation and he's committed to our sanctification and he's committed to our glorification. Even when our faults are continuously floating to the surface, our lives are being refined, right? And, and the, the imperfections are just being scooped off of the top like dross, Right? Like gold that is being, being refined. This is the work that God is committed to in us. And so let us not be prideful. Let us not be arrogant. Let us not be confused when confronted with our inability and our need. And so let's get to it. How do we see it on display within this passage? Look at verse 32. They continue on. This is all in the walk there. We haven't even got to the big part yet, right? This is just the buildup. And they went to a place called Gethsemane. And he said to his disciples, sit here while I pray. Now there is this, there's this providential knowledge within the mind of Christ of that which is before him. Right? He, he is aware. He is intimately acquainted and he knows the plan. And so in this, there is this need to, to, to move into and lean into the Father. In this season, in this time, leading up to that which is to take place. And so we see Jesus saying, hey, you guys hang out here. I'm going to pray. But he takes verse 33, a few guys with him. Who does he take with him? He takes with him Peter and James and and John. Peter and and James and John. Now, why is this important? Why is this valuable? Because in James and John, we have the the Sons of Thunder. Do you guys remember this? They sound like a wrestling tag team duo. In, in, In Mark chapter 10, James and John tell Jesus that, hey, we will drink of your cup, right? And so now, as we're going to see Christ on his face in the garden, in preparation for that which is to take place in just a few moments, he takes two guys with him that in Mark chapter 10 said they were prepared to drink of the cup. And so what's he showing them? What's he going to show them? Well, he's going to show them their inability, isn't he? By way of the turmoil and the distress that he will feel in his soul as he prepares for this moment. But he also takes Peter, doesn't he? Now, what do we know about Peter? Well, we know a lot of things about Peter. But most recently, we know and we see Peter saying to Jesus, I won't fall away. Right? Everyone else may scatter, but I won't. And so so Jesus takes these three with him a little bit further into the garden. And we see in verse 33 that even on his way, he becomes greatly distressed and troubled. And he says to them, if there's any confusion, my soul is very sorrowful. My soul is very sorrowful, even to death. And so remain here and, and watch. Now, what is, he, what is he telling them to watch for? This is an interesting statement right there, isn't it? Right? I mean, he knows that he's going to be seized. And so it's not, and he's submitted to his seizure. We're going to see that in just a few moments. And so it's not, hey, watch and like see if anybody comes. If they do, you know, hit me with a hoo-hoo and like we'll, we'll be out of here, right? We'll escape this thing. That's not what Jesus is about. He's not interested in escaping here. And so it's not like watch out like a getaway driver, right? 
But instead, it's more this, this watch, what I am to endure as I leave you here because you can go no further. As I come over here and you see the distress and the sorrow of my soul being poured out. I want you to watch it. I want you to observe it. Why? Well, because in it, we're confronted with our inability, aren't we? In it, we are, in this scene, confronted with our humanity. In it, we're confronted with, with our tendencies to shrink back as Jesus leans in. In it, we are confronted with our great need. In it, we are confronted with the magnitude of this moment. I was trying to think back on the gospel accounts. And trying to imagine or consider other scenes within Matthew, Mark, Luke, or John in which we see Jesus' soul sorrowful in this way. And I thought of a, a few. We see Jesus lamenting right over Jerusalem in light of their, their sin and rebellion, hard-heartedness, right? We see the degree of sorrow from Jesus, right, following the death of his friend Lazarus as he, as he approaches uh, his burial site and sees just the weeping that is taking place and the, and the hurt that comes along with loss and with death. But I think that there's an element in which we see a most unique scene being laid out here. In verse 35, we see Jesus going a little, bit, a little bit farther, and he fell on the ground, and he prayed that if it were possible, that the hour might pass from him. Again, there's this emphasis, isn't there, on, on the magnitude of this event. Right? And, and, and the challenge before Jesus. Everything in the flesh desires to, to, to pull away. And yet we see Christ's steadfastness. Now this is important. This is an important theme as we continue to unpack this passage. He prays in verse 36. Abba, Father, all things are possible for you. Remove this cup from me. Yet, not what I will, but what you will. This is very simple. Right? This, is, this is very simple for us to, to begin understanding and grasping in that there is a realization that is brought to light here that that which, is Jesus, that which Jesus is to embrace is going to be more difficult and more challenging than anything that we can imagine. And that there is this, this sense in which Jesus is, 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 is understanding and, and recognizing in a most unique way, in a way that you and I are incapable of fully understanding and comprehending, that which is to take place. And he, he asks the Father, if there's any other way, let this pass. Having looked into the cup of God's wrath that Christ is to drink for sinners, we see that there is a, a shudder that takes place, Right? That there's a, there's a shuddering that takes place as, 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 as Jesus looks into this cup of man's sin and God's wrath and understands that which he is to absorb for you and I. And yet in it all, what does he say? 
Well, not not my will, but but your will, right? Your will, your will be done. In verse thirty-seven, he comes and he finds his followers sleeping, and he says to them, "Peter, Simon, are you asleep? Could you not watch one hour?" And we all go, "Man, you couldn't stay awake for an hour." And then we remember last year, don't we? <laughs> Our flesh is weak. Our flesh is weak. We see it emphasized. Watch and pray that you may not enter into temptation. The spirit indeed is willing, but the flesh is weak. Right? The flesh is the flesh is weak. And again he went away and he prayed, saying the same words. And again he came back and found them sleeping. And their eyes were very, very heavy, and they did not know what to answer him. And then he came a third time and he said to them, Are you still sleeping and taking your rest? Now listen to this. I had a wonderful conversation with Pastor Neil uh, this past week about this portion of Mark 14, in which Jesus says, hey, this is, this is enough. The hour has come. The Son of Man is betrayed into the hands of sinners. Now, there is this betrayal that is to take place, and we understand that there is this sovereign and providential knowledge that Jesus has, that there is a, an army of people that are on their way being led by one of his friends to seize him and to take him. And yet he says here in this most interesting statement that that he is betrayed now in this scene into the hands of sinners. And I think that there's this is intentional. I think that there's an intentionality as we consider the the structure of this passage. That the first thing that we're talking about is Jesus' betrayal at the hands of those who are still with him. They couldn't stay awake. Right, they, they fell asleep. Their sin is being drawn to the surface and put on display by way of their inability to, to lean into prayer over this monumentous moment that is now building up incredible steam the same way that Jesus is. There's a sense in which we see Jesus' friends and followers betray him in their weakness of flesh. Now there is this betrayal that's coming up. But they're every one of them. There is none without guilt within this passage. And I think that's what uh, we see drawn out to a certain degree as as we read through verse 41. Verse 42, rise, let us be going. See, my betrayer is at hand. It's time, right? It's time. Momentum is building, and here we go. And we see in verses 43 through 45, Jesus is being sold out. Jesus is sold out. Look with me at verse 33, 43. Sorry, we can't go back to 33. We don't have time for that. We'll go on to 43. And immediately while he was still speaking, Judas came, one of the twelve, and with him a crowd with swords and clubs, with chief priests and scribes and elders. These are the guys that we've seen conspiring for some time now, right? Now the betrayer had given them a sign saying, the one I will kiss is the man, seize him and lead him away under guard. And when he came, he went up to him at once and said, Rabbi, and he kissed him. Last week we emphasized Jesus bringing up the betrayal at the hands of his friends while enjoying this meal. Right? And we talked about the intimacy of this moment and this being the time in which Jesus has decided to speak first in this scene concerning their rejection of him. They're fleeing, right? 
And then we come here and we see that if it could get more intimate, it does. And that Judas chooses the sign, a kiss upon the cheek of Jesus to signal that this is the one that you're looking for. Now, commentators are all over the place about what this means and why it's a kiss that's chosen. Some say that Judas is desiring to save some degree of face. And so as he kisses Jesus and Jesus is taken away, he can stand there with the rest of them and go, what in the world's going on here? And he doesn't lose all of his friends, right? But I think that one thing that we can definitely say, regardless of the reasoning behind uh, Judas choosing this particular sign or not, is that in it, we see how low the human heart can go, (laughs) right? Through the sign, we see how low the human heart can go. We see this kiss, an especially terrible betrayal as it has been defined. While at the same time, we see how high the heart of God can soar. And think about what we've seen through the earthly ministry of Jesus as we consider back uh, to, to Matthew chapter 5. Perhaps you're, perhaps you're familiar with it, but it's this instruction from Jesus to his people to love their enemies. Well, what does that look like? Well, we get a really solid and genuine picture of what that looks like um, as we observe the betrayal of, of Judas. And we see in this that there is no rejection from Jesus, even as he is seized, as he is sold out, abandoned, betrayed by his friends, that there is, there is no rejection. But instead, there is great compassion that flows out of this scene. And so let's flash forward in the story just a little bit because we are getting close to running out of time. And so let's look at the abandonment of Jesus. Jesus is abandoned in verses 46 through 50. We are holding no punches. Everyone, everyone's guilty, right? Like everyone's guilty, and we see it in this passage, verse 46. And they laid hands on him and seized him. But one of those who stood by drew his sword, and he struck the servant of the high priest and cut off his ear. Things just escalated, didn't they? Right? Things have gotten serious as now there is now sword wielding and swinging taking place. And this guy has lost his ear. Jesus is in the midst of being seized unjustly. Following a time of great turmoil in the garden. And now we've got a fight breaking out. <laughs> right? And we've got an ear cut off, and Jesus meets him with compassion. Look with me at verse 48. And Jesus said to them, have you come out against a robber with swords and clubs to capture me? Like, is this not massive overkill, everyone? Right? Like, like why, are you, why do you all have weapons? If you look at, I believe it's Matthew's account, you actually see, no, it's actually John's account. No. Yes, it is. It's John's account in which we see as Jesus surrenders himself, he identifies uh, he identifies himself as the, the like I am. Right. He says, like, I am him. Like, I'm who you are looking for. Right. And, and as he says it, that all the soldiers who have who have gathered around to seize Jesus are knocked back. Right. That they're, they're, that they're knocked back, that there's this sovereign display of power from Jesus. And yet, and so it's silly, isn't it, when we consider what John has to say about 
Well, the sea looks like, as, as he says, why do you all have clubs and swords? Like, I could, like, obliterate you all, like, if that were my desire. I mean, just melt you everywhere. It highlights for us, again, Christ's commitment to this plan and to the purpose of God to redeem to redeem a people. Day after day, I was with you in the temple teaching, and you didn't seize me. Why? Well, because you were afraid you would get beat up by the mob that would undoubtedly ensue as you took one uh, that they really enjoyed listening to and benefiting from. But let the scriptures be fulfilled. What? Jesus is committed to the fulfillment of the scriptures. Here we go. Take me. Right? I, I, I submit myself. Right? Not ultimately to you, although it is manifesting itself in that way, but to the will of, of God. There's this victory in the garden, which we're going to talk about in the end. The, these great garden scenes that we observe in the Bible. There's a victory from Christ, and we see him here surrendering himself in order that the scriptures might be fulfilled. And his friends respond by, by what? By running away. Right by, by fleeing, by running away. Now it is worth noting that Jesus in this moment does dip into his divinity and he brings about healing, right? Like he heals the guy who has lost the ear in the melee, right? He, he doesn't dip into his divinity in order to like teleport himself out of this scene or knock all of these guys down and part them like the Red Sea and walk through. Right? But he, he dips into his divinity in order to bring about this, this healing. Ironically enough, he is on his way to bring about the greatest healing that you and I could ever imagine when confronted with our need. Jesus is betrayed. Jesus is sold out. And Jesus is abandoned. And in his abandonment, we see his sovereignty through his submission. The, the last thing that I want us to look at and touch on this morning is the exposing of human guilt, shame, fear, and need that we observe in verses 51 and 52. Now, this is a unique scene. Let's just be honest, right? Like, this is unique. I was talking to Madison Sproul earlier, and I asked her to read this morning before I found out she was serving in King's Kids. And I said, hey, would you read this passage? And she said, sure. Like, where do you want me to stop? And I said, just read until you get to the naked guy. Like, that's how far we're going to go. Uh, that's how far we're going to go this morning. It's a unique scene, and I don't know that as I've read through Mark's account before, I really knew what to do with it. But when you consider everything that has led up to this moment, think about, think about our informing of, of nakedness by way of what we see in Genesis chapter 3. Okay, in, in Genesis chapter 3, there's this, there's this scene painted in which man rebels from God by way of disobeying his instruction, his word. And as sin enters into the human existence, how does man respond? Well, they look at one another and they notice that they are naked. And what happens? Well, there's, there's shame, right? They're, they're ashamed. And so they jump into the bushes and they sew together these like, like, like fig leaf like coverings, right? That are not adequate at all to cover, which we're going to touch on in just a, a few moments. And then we're coming in this scene in Mark chapter 14, we're coming out of another garden, having observed 
the betrayal of Jesus, the selling out of Jesus, and now the abandonment of Jesus as his friends run away like scared mice. We've got one more that we're going to touch on next week as we see all that Christ said about Peter coming to fruition. But, but what do we see here in uh, this, this fourth observation? We see a physical display of that which has taken place spiritually over the course of the last few verses. Uh, let, let me read a, a few things. Let's unpack this together as we close out our time. In verse 27, Jesus says to his followers, you will all fall away. And over the course of the next 22 verses, we see that happen. But there's a foreshadowing to events like these in another garden in Genesis chapter 3, as we've already referenced, where we see the exposure of Adam. And so let's, let's contrast the two garden scenes for just a moment. In the first garden, we see Adam reject the will of God and instead pursue after his own will. In the second garden, we see Jesus, the truer and better Adam, submit himself to the will of the Father in the face of unimaginable difficulty and turmoil. In the first garden, we see God pursue after man, right? They jump into the bushes and we see, we see God seek after them and speak grace to them. The hope of the seed before unpacking the consequences of man's rebellion. And then what does he do? Well, their coverings were insufficient, and so he kills an animal. He sheds its blood in order to provide coverings for them. Now, what do we observe in the second garden? In the second garden, we see man run from God. And so in the first garden, God pursues after rebellious man. Here, we see God being obedient and humanity being, yet again, rebellious as they run from him. First, by Peter, James, and John in verses 32 through 41, and then by Judas in verses 44 and 45, and then by those who seize Jesus in verse 46, and then by his friends who flee in verse 50. It's just a major mess. In this passage, as Jesus prepares for his arrest and death, we see the hearts of men are exposed. Right, Sin and shame and guilt coming to a head in this scene with, if you look at it in verse 51 and 52, a literal naked man running through the garden. All of the exposure that we've seen laid out over the past 22 verses come to a head as we see this physically naked, who many believe to be John Mark, the author of the gospel that we've been reading through over the past year, running naked through the garden. In verses 51 and 52, there's a sense in which this young naked man displays on a physical level that which has been taking place on a spiritual and emotional level within Jesus' followers. Where we're beginning to land here. In the first garden, God provides coverings for his fallen people. And for the briefest of moments, as the disciples scatter, John Mark is left running through the garden, there is... A wrestling going on. Right, will God again cover the shame of sinners? We see it in Genesis chapter 3, but what is to take place here in Mark's gospel? The answer, of course, is yes. 
Right? The answer is, is yes, that God will again cover the guilt and shame of the, of the naked. Only it wouldn't be at the cost of spilt blood of an animal. But it would be the spilt blood of Jesus. And so the tension and the brief wrestling that we see in this passage comes to an end as we observe this gospel plan that's now being fulfilled. Jesus experiences for us. I want us to close with this. Sometimes, and I say, I've said this from time to time. I'm closing out in like a minute. Just hang with me. Sometimes we read passages and we go, okay, well, how do I respond to this passage? A lot of times we ask that question, right? But I think sometimes what we can do is we can get caught up in a response of, okay, what do I do with my hands and my feet and not what do I do with my heart? Does that make sense? I think that this morning, what we think must be informed by what we read. And that then what we think and the way that our hearts are transformed will then produce within us many different responses. Right? That we will be a prayerful people, that we will be a reliant people, that we will be a humble people, that we will be a people that will seek to kill pride because we know that we have nothing in and of ourselves. And that we have everything in Christ. That we would be a, a worshipful people. That we would be a worshipful people. We've talked a lot about this over the past few weeks. But when you, when you consider statements like this that we're going to close on, I think our response is the gratitude of our hearts and the humility of our souls as we approach the table, considering that which we've heard, and then singing. And then singing together. Jesus, is, Jesus experiences betrayal and isolation for sinners so that we can know fellowship with God. While Jesus' friends flee, Jesus does not. And because Jesus did not free death and sin, do not have the final word for those of us in Christ. And the hope of the gospel says, man, we look to Christ. Right? We look to Christ for salvation and rescue. We look to salvation uh, for, for hope. We're going to sing in just a, a few minutes, just a few moments now, actually. Uh, we're going to sing a, a song that's somewhat new but relatively familiar. But one of the lines that we will sing is this, that, that grace and love like mighty rivers poured incessant from above. Heaven's peace and perfect justice kissed a guilty world in love. We see the guilt of humanity on display over the course of these verses. And yet at the same time, we see the love of God on display through these verses. And so let us consider our guilt and God's love and how this produces within us a heart of gratitude and worship as we go to the table this morning.